Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of my first season. And oh boy, do we have a doozy for you today. I never had the pleasure of working with my next guest, but we did meet for the first time in 2003 in Sandpiper, where he was the chief of village. He did a whopping 39 seasons in Club Med and 14 years in the Miami Club Med office. And in a my first season first, he is the first guest on the show who is still currently employed by Club Med. He is the senior director UDT, which stands for Université des Talents, in the Club Med office in Miami. Still don't know who I'm talking about? Well, he is originally from Vancouver, now lives in Miami, and in two years of this podcast, his name has come up so often that when I ran into him at Red's birthday party in Montreal during the summer of 2022, I had to stop myself from practically begging him to come on the podcast. Luckily for me, he graciously agreed. In Club Med, he is known by one name and one name only, and in fact, he is the only Clement employee around the world that has a nickname in their Outlook address. Of course, I am talking about the one and only, the incredible, the Iron Man, the always positive, the man, the myth, the legend. He's probably going to kill me for saying this. It's Hammer Time! Please welcome Chris Keeley, a.k.a. Hammer. Hammer, how are you this morning, sir? Well, I, I think we might have to wrap up this session after that. I, I'm, I'm good to go. Yeah, I see we're out of time. Okay. <laughs> I was already a, a legend in my own mind. And <laughs> you really got me in trouble. Okay. Well, welcome. Welcome to my first season. I, well, thank uh, you, Greg. And listen, I I, I got to do something and get right back at you. And I, sure. I said I do that in Montreal is a, a massive appreciation of what you're doing. A big thank you to you. I've been listening to you for a long time. And it's impressive the way you've kept people kept all the geos, the ex-geos, and the whole spirit of Club Med in such a positive light. So, I mean, you've set a great tone on this podcast. So big thank you to you. And, and of course, a shout out. As you say, I, I've listened to so many, and it's almost embarrassing when you hear your name come up so many times. So yeah, do you get disappointed? Great, great. You get you get disappointed when your name doesn't come up now because <laughs> it happens so often. <laughs> You're like, hey, I work with that guy. Why didn't he mention me? <laughs> no, but I'm sure proud to hear so many of them. Uh, doing great in life now, that's for sure. So many people I worked with over the decades, you know? Well, yeah. And like I said, I never got the chance to to work with you, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, I always heard of you and finally got to meet you and uh, Sam Piper in 2003. So, uh, well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks again for coming on and sharing a uh, part of your story with us here today. No pleasure. And and I know we talked about it in Montreal and, and you just announced it and uh, proud of it. I think both you and I that. uh, We'll, we'll call this a groundbreaker and, and hopefully uh, I can help you as well to uh, to do podcasts with existing Jews because the key to everything you're doing and the key to the club is that DNA that still exists since 1950, the spirit, uh, emotional attachment that every Jew has had over the years. Same today as it was 72 years ago. I know you're right. You're right. And uh, where I work currently at Concordia University, people are always asking, Greg, why did you leave? And I'm like, have you met me? Because I'm an idiot, you know. So, you know, <laughs> we all wish we were back and, uh, you know, we miss it more than ever. And it's good to talk to uh, to people like you and XGOs to, to, you know, keep it alive, like you said. I appreciate it. All right. Well, you know how we do here. If you could take me back in time, sir, to uh, what you were doing, where were you living, where were you working and going to school? And uh, how did you first hear about Club Med? Well, I'll tell you what it is. I'll give you the I'll give you the story. And the, and the beginning of the Club Med story with myself was 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 never alone. It was always the big three, myself, Jenner and Cheese, who you've talked to extensively. We kind of have two first seasons, which, again, I know I'm I'm cheating on the podcast again. Uh, we were traveling the South Pacific. And the reason we were traveling the South Pacific was a buddy back home, Sparrow, 
he said, you guys got to go to Club Med. I've been there with my parents when I was 18. It's awesome. You know, sports, party, girls, you got to go. So we thought about it. And when we were going on this South Pacific trip, we had got talked into the package by our high school football coach's wife, travel agent. And in the end, when she knew we were going to Tahiti, she said, oh, if you're going to Tahiti, you've got to stay at a Club Med. And we were like, no way. And they, she pushed and pushed. And I, I finally said, I, well, you know what? Jenner Cheese, you stay in this Club Med place. I'll stay outside the compound. That was my image, you know? And finally, she said, look, guys, in Club Med, the beer's included, and you can water ski all day. And we said, okay, we'll go. So that became a trip as a GM to Tahiti. And a short story, or make it short, we, we were in there and, you know, looking for girls, myself and Jenner, and Cheese, uh, who had an act, also a kind of ex-Gio Michelle was still his girlfriend. So Cheese was the good boy on the trip. And Jenner and I were... We're on the prowl. And uh, then we watched this huge, big Bahamian guy in this wild outfit walk past us. And we said, oh, man, there's our competition. Later to find out that he was Hansel, the chief of sports, who you've also done a podcast with. And later that evening, he called us on stage. And five uh, days later, he met with us and said, can I talk to you guys? I hear you're Canadian. You're a little obnoxious. You're a little crazy, but you're nice and everybody likes you. Why don't you stick around and work with me? And we were like, what? Yeah, yeah, just do a little short-term stint with us here in Morea, Tahiti. So we actually stayed working in Tahiti. So that became our first experience, if you will. It wasn't an official first season because we weren't sent there by Club Med, but we were, were recruited on site for a quick stay. So that was kind of the first, my first season right there. And you, you, so you still remember to this day meeting uh, Hansel? Oh man, walked by him. And, and as I said, he was this, you know, you know, Hansel, he was a big bodybuilder yeah. at the time and had such a present. He filled up a room. And as well, we were thinking, oh man, girls are going to like him better than us. That's no good. <laughs> so, uh, but of course he became uh, not only a uh, responsive sport, but our mentor and, and really the one who taught us the true DNA of, of Club Med, of making people happy. True enough. I, I spent two and a half years with him. I was lucky. And yeah, I would agree with that for sure. All right. You finish your South Pacific trip, I assume. So what happens when you get home? Well, then we start to morph into the second first season. We could not get back to work. Uh, we were just not obsessed, but just caught so emotionally, like so many of us have been in the past, in, in only three weeks. We just couldn't get it out of our mind. I was selling real estate. Jenner was an assistant research scientist at Simon Fraser University. Cheese was in charge of the produce department in the Safeway. I mean, we had career and we just couldn't do it. So we kept calling New York office and they were like, we've never heard of you. Who are you people? Meanwhile, Hansel, he was trying to get us on in turquoise. Finally, we get this call and New York says, well, look, one of you can go. So they, of course, Jenner and Cheese nominate me. So I'm getting ready to go to turquoise, which I'd never heard about before. And of course, fly in as all of you and, and we were this uneducated kind of on Club Med first season experience. What we found out 10 years later at my wedding is we asked everybody to, to tell a story at our wedding. So Hansel told the story of when he was in Turquoise that time uh, in uh, you know, 89, 90. And he had gone to the chef village, Jose Leal, and said, look, by the way, I got to bring these three guys, maybe short term if I can, to Turquoise. And he's like, what are you talking about three guys? I've never heard about these people. You can't just bring three guys. So that didn't work. So he went back two weeks later, went to Jose Aliel. This is back in the day. And he says to Jose Aliel, Jose, I can't do my season with you unless I bring these three guys. in." And Jose looks him in the eye and goes, you can bring one. And that's how I got to go. So a week later, Hansel tells the story. Jose came to see him after a week in the village. And he goes, OK, I've seen this guy. Bring the other two. 
And that became, uh, you know, the next two seasons of uh, Cheddar Cheese Hammer kind of rallying the troops in every village and going nuts. So that was how we got into a village. Okay, let's let's mention, normally ask this question later on, but your your nickname, Hammer. So I'm assuming you got it back in, in BC, but then, how did, so how did you get the nickname Hammer? And then how did it follow you to Clement? Well, remember, we only got an hour on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so again, I'll try the quick, but back in baseball, yeah. baseball back in Richmond, Vancouver, BC, and uh, in a big ball tournament and uh, a, an NFL player named Jim Mills, he comes and bumps the announcer who happened to be my dad. My dad ran the the announcing booth. So he kicks my dad out and he starts announcing the game half cut. And he's a famous NFL player. So nobody's going to say anything to him. So he starts announcing and we go way back and his dad went way back with my dad. So we're in the middle of this tournament, a big game. And I'm coming up to the plate and he just slurs next up to bat number nine, Chris, the hammer Keeley, because it was the era of the hammer in the wrestling. So I single, which is no big deal, but I'm sitting on first base and, and my dugout who just loves this, they start chanting hammer, hammer, and of course, the fans and the beer garden starts going hammer. So that was back home because everybody who plays hockey in Canada, as you know, has got a nickname. So I get to Club Med and it's Chris Waterski. That's me. There was Chris Tennis and there was Chris Beach. So at one point, the chief of uh, the uh, secretary, sorry, of the chief of village got so sick of having Chris one, Chris two, Chris three on the geo program. He, she heard Jenner and she's always call me hammer. So she just started writing down hammer on the program. And nicknames were so thick in the club two or three seasons later, I'd get mailed to a village for Chris Keeley and the secretaries would just throw it away because they only knew me as Hammer. So it it, uh, it caught on, let's say. Okay. <laughs> wow. At Turquoise, they put you in water ski? That was the day almost you'd arrive in a village and a chief of sports and chief of village would sometimes, you know what, I'm short of a guy here. You're going to water ski. And I did have a bit of a background, but I mean, nowhere near what the, uh, the club and water ski geos were like. I mean, they were pros at the time. And I was just thrown into this team of barefooters and competitive ski course runners. And here's Mr. First Season uh, Hammer Water Ski. Did uh, Jojo come out to see you like while you're piloting a boat or anything? Well, you know, I'll tell you what, we, we, we probably won't get into the, the differences of the years. But that, that okay. was the, the day when we water skied. There was seven foot wingspan rays floating by all the time, four foot barracudas. And Jojo was at what, that water ski dock two hours a day. He would knock over the skier's ski just when they were about to start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a great part of the village, though. He's doing his little an animation passage, uh, Jojo. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, while you're at water ski, like, I'm wondering, like, how long did it take you to, you know, start noticing what everyone else was doing? Did you want to go to land sports at all? Or were you happy staying where you were in water ski? Well, again, here's that legend in my own mind. I mean, we were out of control. She's Jenner and I. We, we walked into this thing. We knew it was this un organized company because we came out of business. We knew it was just uh, unique, but for us, it was utopia because we said, okay, these guys are getting paid to make people happy. The more happier we make people, the more these people like us. This is, this is not possible. And so we didn't just embrace that. We, we just took it on as if it was, you know, our kingdom. And so I was in water ski, she's on the beach and Jenner and land sports, and it just suited us all. So none of us wanted to change. And Jenner was inventing land sport things. And he took over the weekly fitness programs. And I was going in the water ski shows in heaven. And, and she's, you know, first season Joe, he'd walk up to Jose Alejo backstage and say, hey, Jose, I uh, saw the beach party last week. I don't know if it was that good. I'd like to organize the beach party. And, you know, you don't get that much. Even today, uh, a chef village listening to a first season like that, they kind of have to kind of earn their uh, their way. 
but he saw it in his eye and he said, okay, you run the next beach party. And, uh, you know, we were begging for the microphone. And uh, every time I look at an old picture, I see me on the microphone. I said, how the heck did I figure that out the first season? But we just, we just loved it. We just ran with it. So it was a pleasure. Now, do any of your uh, funny stories come from this, uh, this season at all in Turks and Caicos? Now you might get me in trouble. Okay. <laughs> no, no. There was there was some beauties, and uh, you know how that first season doesn't just resonate when we talk about it with each other, but it's all of us. Everybody who's a geo has that emotional attachment that, and I think you brought it up when we were going back and forth a bit. That that magic, I think, was the word. I can't remember. Yes, yes. Of that first season, it's it's just it's enchantment, you know. So yeah, we were in turquoise that first season, eighty nine, when Hurricane Hugo came by. So here's this entire team. And we were on a roll then. I mean, we had a party team and it was a successful you know, village because it was all about the energy and hanging with the GMs and doing great shows. You know, it was all about the ambience. And so Hurricane Hugo hits. And so they decide to evacuate us and put us in Sandpiper. So these 89 or 109 geos from Turquoise, we come in, you know, already, again, half cut coming off the travel from the plane. And we pull into Sandpiper just three days of debauchery, party, no sleep. I mean, we put sandpaper at another level. And when we left, people used to tell me after, they were like, what happened? Who were those people? What the <laughs> heck? So a taste of turquoise and sandpaper back then was uh, was pretty funny. So that was uh, awesome. I think it actually made us prouder as a team. You know, we, we beat the hurricane, you get out, you have fun, you come back. And we were even more fired up for the uh, the rest of the season, you know? This story has me jealous on so many levels because when you got to leave <laughs> before I got there and then you got to go to Sandpiper and you didn't have to work in Sandpiper, right? Getting a taste of another village was always cool. Yeah. The other uh, one in, in uh, well, there's so many, as you can imagine, as you know, but in Turquoise, we also just started to embrace that European culture. I mean, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. The only thing that ever threw me back in the day was, you know, Speedos. Darn, why are Europeans wearing speedos? Yes, they almost forced you into the culture. Here. Yes, the culture shock. That's quite a common uh, thing on this podcast was the culture shock of the, oh, so, so many speedos. But on the European language, on the food and beverage, on the, I don't know, that 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 French flavor of Club Med, we loved it right away. And so one of the things that always caught us was all these French seven o'clock, because, you know, that was aperitif time. So we're all at the bar. And, you know, if you go back that far, you also have a, if you're not at the bar at seven, you know, you're on the next flight home. So we liked it, but seven o'clock was a massive pressure. So all the French were always having that Ricard, you know, or the pastis. And, you know, we're on our cold beer, Canadian. So we started to get on that Ricard a little bit and just to be part of the gang. So I was an Olympic captain one time and I said, you know what? Popcorn. Popcorn was my water ski uh, responsable or chief of activity. And he was a French dude, Alan Barre, popcorn. And no matter what story you ever get, Greg, from whatever XGO, from whatever XRDS, I can promise you that in 72 years, nobody could drink like this guy. Nobody. He would put 10 Brooklyn New Yorkers under the table every night down at the disco in, in Turquoise. So, you know, he taught us the, 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 the ropes there and how to really hook up with the GMs in terms of in terms of supporting them on a GM show and being in the front row in terms of uh, making great friends with all the guys and not falling into that old trap of, of chasing GM girls, which, okay, it's human nature, but it, it doesn't create a great vacation. The key was always to make friends with everybody and to animate a table, a dinner table. I mean, the guy was the master and he knew that the more fun you had, the better job you were doing. So you're making GMs have the best vacation of their life. You're not getting too drunk. You're not 
stealing girls. You're just making sure everybody had a great, great time. And so you end up having a great time. And so did they. So I said, popcorn, I'm Olympic captain. I'm going against you. And I'm going to drink Ricard all night long instead of beer. And he's like, don't do it. I'm telling you, you guys think you're French. You're not. So I had uh, Ricard in my beer drinking contest. I had Ricard for dinner. I had Ricard after, and I had Ricard in the nightclub. So the next day, of course, I'm late for water ski. I get berated by the team, and, you know, GMs are all staring at me. I walk down to the dock, and I grab the kind of the ski hook. In those days, we had to bring in the ski uh, rope because we couldn't get too close to the dock. It was a unique dock. 9.30, 10 o'clock, about 10.15, I put the hook down. I put my pen to the board, take about 50 GMs on the dock. They look at me, I say, I got to go. So I start walking down that long dock in Turquoise back to the village. And then I start jogging and then I start running and I make it about three quarters of the way down. I turn to the right and I just vomit like a movie, like a Will Ferrell movie. And I turn around after, you know, bent over and finishing the up chucking. And I see 50 gems in the dock giving me a standing ovation. <laughs> and so, you know, it was a horrible night that maybe, maybe in 2022, you get, to, if not fired, sanctioned for that, rightly so but I get a standing ovation uh, because that was the, you know, the period. And when you had great relationships with everybody, they, they loved to see the geo humorously fall on their face, you know? So I was more famous from that than if I had not done it. Okay. Two, two questions. Are you saying that you replace in the standard beer drinking contest, you replace beer with Ricard? Is that what you're telling me? Can you imagine? I mean, it wasn't a full, the old guy, <laughs> that ate out. It was about a four ounces of Ricard. <laughs> okay. So they, they had to chug this against. No, no, else, just right? for me, just for me. Greg. Oh, just for you. Okay. Everybody now, now, did you develop a taste for this? Like, can you drink Ricard now? Do you like it now? Not after that night. <laughs> okay, got it. Okay, I, I yeah, okay. I never had that experience, but no, I, I never developed the taste. I tried, but okay, fair enough. Okay. Now, uh, when you're speaking about popcorn and all that, uh, was it around this time? Like, because I've heard you said that you could tell if a GM wasn't happy from 20 feet away. Now, what were some of the your cues or and then and then I obviously I know you gravitated towards those GMs and tried to win them over, correct? It's a great point. And I know when, when we chatted a bit uh, and you talk about which which I when I was in charge of recruitment, I would use this phrase. I still use it today. I talk to the existing geos. If somebody's you know not sure if they should stay or not. And I tell them one thing. I said, guys, you've got to internalize this. This is the best school you'll ever be paid to attend. Bar none just doesn't exist in the world. And that's the same today, language, sports skills, people skills. So the things we all learned that first season, I mean, Cheese was doing tricks on the windsurf board, um, you know, people skills, Jenner on stage. And I'm sure he's going to listen to this, but Jenner, the worst dancer of all of us, almost <laughs> learned to dance, you know? So, so we're getting all these skills, but the one that, that still resonates today, and I guess language is probably one, being able to communicate in, in more than your, your maternal language, was EQ. That, that emotional intelligence that became so attuned because you're trying to make sure the gyms have a good time. Well, the first way to make sure to have a good time is to identify if they're not having a good time. And people like Hansel and, and, and the old school, the family of real geos, they just, they taught us that. It, we, we were immersed in it. And so when I say from 20 feet, I could see somebody who was slightly confused, had a question, something was wrong. And it was just drilled into us till it was such a reflex, a positive reflex, that I would ne never let anybody go by like that. If I saw that, my, my, my need to identify and find a solution for them was so strong. People like us, like our, our gang there, we'd go up to them. So that bodes well in any business, of course. And today, and I'm in the HR field, you know, it's, it's all about that. It's identifying people's uh, 
uh, positive, medium, or or, ne or negative issues they have at the time, and trying to help them uh, along or develop or get to the next step. So, yeah, I tell you, the emotional intelligence developed in those first few seasons was incredible. Okay, and I see that from Turquoise, you go to Playa St. Lucia in Cancun. But at one point in Cancun, you switch to an animator. So you leave the sports team and go on to to be the animator. Can I ask why? Well, you know what? I got to, this time I got to give you the long answer. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. The mobility in Clubman, which still exists today, and it's still an attraction for candidates who want to be a geo. And all, all our ex-geo field recruiters that help us with recruitment are so good at this because you can you can explain the positive side of mobility. Because, you know, there's a negative, you know, not knowing where you're going next and last minute changes and one week at home before you go somewhere. I mean, that's that's tough. But the upside is so huge. So again, in the day, I, I arrived just after the period when geos used to get sent home, mostly in Europe because of the seasonal villages, and wait to get a phone call where were they were going. I mean, it was that last minute. So, of course, Jen and I, uh, or Jen and myself and I, and she, sorry, want to stay together. And we're like, man, three guys at the same place. I mean, we were still intimidated. We were still close with, with Jose, but he was still a chief of village. So we're like, oh, man. So the three of us asked for a meeting with him, which, again, is funny. It's kind of unheard of. We walk into his office. We say, look, we really want to. We really want to work with you. Uh, I mean, want to work uh, together. And so, you know, he's doing the chief of village thing, gives us a stern look. I'll see what I can do. Again, little do we know, he calls up his old chief of sports, who's now become chief of village, Pierre Letier Gagnon, the first Canadian chief of village ever. And so he, we find out later, he calls up Pierre and he goes, Pierre, listen to me. I have three guys here. You're going to take them. They're all three Canadian. They're coming to play a blanket with you. I don't care what position you have for them. They're going to be on your team because, you know, it was that hierarchical thing in Club Med. If Achieve a Village had helped pass you, you were always not in debt, but beholding in a, in a friendly way to them, you know. So Pierre has to take us and he didn't know us from Adam. Uh, and then he sets up for Hansel to go there. So, of course, Hansel's bringing in his crew. And back then, you could have Achieve a Village or Achieve a Sports bringing in 10, 15, 25 of their team. So now we go into Playa and it's the Turquoise Gang and Playa. Then play it at St. Lucia, it's the gang in there. So then we're in St. Lucia, and now we say, well, we've done a year with Pierre. We, you know, we know you got to change chief of villages to learn things or get a different experience. And man, we want to do something else, but you can't tell a chief of village that. So again, as fate would have it, as it seemed to always with us, José Ariel goes back to the villages from the office. So he contacts Pierre in St. Lucia by fax, of course. And the traffic geo, Lynn, she comes to us one day and she goes, look at this fax. And you see seven names on the fax. And Jose says, Pierre, these seven geos are coming to Cancun with me. <laughs> so we already knew where we were going before anybody else. And yeah, we arrive in Cancun. And that's where another direction change happened in my career. In, uh, as, you, as you mentioned and asked there, I was back in water ski. And there was an animator named Bam Bam there, a legendary animator named Bam Bam. Yes. So that was the first year we went from six months uh, to a year because of the Gulf War. And financially, logistically, we just couldn't move thousands of people every six months. So all of a sudden, Cub Med's going to go to a one-year assignment. Well, I mean, people were devastated. And Bam Bam was so principled, he went to Jose Leon and said, I quit. There's no way I'm working a year. So off Bam Bam goes. And he goes, but you better put Hammer as animator. And Jose says, no, nah, no, nah, he's a sports show. So they bring in an animator. He gets fired after a week. Uh, Bam Bam uh, faxes Jose you should have put a hammer no no he's a sports show next guy comes in he gets fired so finally Jose comes to me and I goes I'm going to test you for a week anyway I fell in love with uh, animator Bam Bam 
realizes the mistake he made. So, of course, he begs to come back and Jose says, I want him. Because there was no contract at the time, Jose Alel with such power says, I don't care. I'm having two animators. So for three months in Cancun in 1990, Bam Bam and I were animator. And man, we ripped that place up. So I learned so much from him and we played off each other well. And you remember that, that job, that role. You had carte blanche to mess with 700 people uh, in a funny way, of course. So, yeah, that was the switch to animator and, and animation, if you will. Wow. You and Bam Bam for three months in the same village. Ridiculous. It must have you been know, amazing. You can't do all those passages and entrances to the restaurant and go over. But we we put one together. You know, everybody says they invented something in Club Med, right? So we would go to the Cancun airport. And of course, it was a wild west. then. so we would go all the way back into the luggage area. They all knew immigration, knew the traffic. You know, they didn't care back then. So Bam Bam and I dress up like two nerds. We go where the luggage is. We grab our fake luggage. or We actually brought it in. We arrive. We go on the bus with all the gems, full nerds. And we start talking like nerds, acting like nerds, starting to fight like nerds. And these people are looking at us and they're, oh, this is not happening. And Bam Bam would like crawl up onto the luggage thing in the bus and sneak up behind me, look down at me and drop things. I mean, it was nuts. We got to the village. We're lined up. I want our room 305, please. I mean, we were crazy. And GMs were at the reception. Well, there was no reception, sorry. At the um, arrival place going, I, I just, I don't want to room with one of these guys. I don't want to be near one of these two guys. And then um, as the information meeting was happening that night, you know, how we did that with 500 people getting their first day information, you know, we would walk into the information meeting with a towel on and a shampoo all over us and stuff like this. So, and then we got introduced as the two animators. So, oh man, we, uh, we had the time of our life. I could imagine. I could only imagine. <laughs> 1990. Wow. Okay. Then you proceed to Martinique. Okay. Animator. And then I see a season in Playa, you become chief of animation, correct? Yeah. And you know, for, for anybody who, who might be listening to us that went through this and you know how many did Greg, it was the way we kind of, we learned under pressure or, uh, you know, survival of the fittest and whatnot. I got sent to Martinique by Jose because it's time you learn how to be a, a chief of service. And so you got to learn French. So you go into Martinique to learn French. I'm like, oh boy, you know, the stress is on, but you do it. So I remember getting off the bus, chief of village, Bernard Giampolo, waiting for me at the bottom of the bus. You're a hammer? Yeah. You're the animator? Yeah. You speak French? Uh, yeah. And I remember that night, you know, on the microphone, uh, bonsoir tout le monde. <laughs> the piece to dance is open. <laughs> and all, you know, all the French priests looking at me, just wanting to kill me. But you learn and you get through it. And, you, you know, it's just, it, you, you know, it's like bodybuilding life. You're just, you push yourself, you, you grow muscles and, and you get stronger. Okay. So as chief of animation back then in the early nineties, was that the route to chief of village or was it chief of sport, chief of village? Or were you not thinking about that at that point? You were only concentrating on the job. Great question, because it's actually a challenge that still exists today through the years is it's one of the few departments in the village that doesn't have a clear development path because, you know, the technicians were technicians. Many of them became an RDS, but it wasn't natural in their profile. As, as you know, the choreographers had all that show strength, but their focus was so much on the stage. They always had trouble having a larger scope. And then you had the animator. Some of them were so nuts, there was no way they were going to manage somebody. But yeah, I think at the time that was the path or the chief of sports, as you remember, would move laterally. So I started coming at 29. So by the time I hit Cancun, I was probably 31, acting like a kid, but with a few smarts of a 31-year-old. So yeah, that became the path. And I kind of got identified and they said, you got to learn some French. And, and I 
You know, Chiva Villages, there's nothing like it. And people told me and I told others after, you'll never spend a time in your life like this, which is still true to this day. But preference maybe for the experience, boy, those Chiva of animation, or as we say today, uh, responsive events, what a position. I mean, you're, you're creating, you're making a new show. Again, carte blanche on the stage, events outside. And, you know, you're almost managing the whole village because every Geo and sometimes G has to perform in one way or the other, and you're, you're holding the reins. Man, I love that position. And I assume you liked Playa. Are you like everyone else? Did you love Playa because of the, you know, its situation? It's a small village, yet it was so concentrated. You know, you couldn't move around. So all the GMs and GOs were together. Man, you must hear that so often. I mean, today I get asked the question in today's portfolio, which is awesome. And, and, you know, we have luxurious brand with the exclusive collection. And I mean, we've got such a high level of comfort today, but still that spirit, still that conviviality with with relationships with the Joes and Gs and Gems. But at the time when so many more were open, the easiest village to create those relationships were Playa. So as I said earlier, already ambience and relationship building, which was such a, a force and a, and a love by all of us, as you know, that was probably the easiest village that ever existed in Club Med to do it. And there was so, as you know, so the, the location, the country, Mexico, the, the Gs and Joes from Mexico, the clientele, by far the favorite place I ever worked in. I think everyone misses Playa a lot, you know, because it comes up a lot. Your your name and Playa come up a lot <laughs> on this podcast. All right. So I see for some reason, okay, you go to Phuket and uh, do, you, do you become a coordinator of sports and animation? Did you have two jobs? And if so, why did you do that to yourself? Yeah, great, great. Like that. You're right. Pain and pain and pleasure. So you remember, and it's very similar today. I mean, you get to a certain degree. Today we call them key talent back away the way the pot geos or pot g's and in in our time there was not really a an identification or management identification program it was kind of they watched you they observed you you proved yourself and behind the scenes they were all working on your future it was very secretive and then you just got announced but so many of us and you've talked to many others there was a certain ambition not born out of selfishness usually but born out of i want to do more i want to manage more, you know, I, I can be such a good geo, why can't I lead geos? And that, that was my way. And then I would run into a, an entertainment manager, or a responsive animation. I'm like, man, you know, they can't manage their way out of a wet paper bag. Why aren't I doing that? So I almost did it by default. And then after a while, you're like, well, now I'm looking at the sports managers. And I, I guess it's that healthy ego too. I'm like, well, I come from sports. I can manage sports better than these guys. So at that time, someone told me, oh, you should do both. And I went, what? I said, yeah, there's a coordinator loisir position. So I started to ask around, how do I do that? And again, unbeknownst to us, chiefs of villages are looking at you and they kind of never told you what they thought of you in the day. They just kind of challenged you. But yeah, that, that came my way. And they just said, hey, for the next season in Phuket, you're going to be, um, if you make the stage. Because you remember at the time, you weren't appointed chief of sports. You had to go to a sports stage in France with about 16 to 20 guys and beat them. It, it was not a development step. It was a selective process. Might have been one of the most stressful seven days of my life. So you're against these, you know, these monsters and Olympic skiers and and uh, long-term club men and speaking six languages. And you got to beat all these guys as the minority North American to become chief of sports. So, you know, and you try to act cool at the same time. So you want to, you want to beat their butt, but you can't show it. You, once you pass that, then I became sports and entertainment. Where, where was your, your stage for Chiva Sports, if you don't mind me asking? Pompidou, France. 
Okay, Pompadour. Now, did you find like me when I did my stage in Opio, the hardest part about the stage was sitting in a classroom for seven or eight hours. Man. And was still it, today, huh? Wasn't yeah, that I'm, the hardest? I mean, I, it was. <laughs> well, I'm I mean, in the learning development department now, and you put people in a room, you've got to use, uh, you know, different techniques. And there are many le- training techniques like that, but you got to keep moving, stand them up, change position, get to, like you say, achieve a sports or achieve a village level. Oh my God. So, yeah, we, we, everyone falls asleep. Every, as you remember, you're guiding off in that classroom. And, to, and then when we went outside and it was like letting the bulls run, you know? That's right. Now, now I see after Phuket, you go to one of my favorite places in the world. So I, I hope we can talk about Lindemann Island for, for a moment here. What, uh, what year were you in Lindemann as sports and animation? Do you remember? Was it still early 90s? I have heard you love that place. Yes. <laughs> what an experience. And, you know, I loved it for two reasons, because it was Australia, which is almost enough. Well, a bunch of reasons. It was already Australia, so that's incredible. But at the time, and I'm sure you had uh, Mucho as well, we were about 25% Japanese guests. And, you know, a lot of geos, especially the PR, of course. And that exposure and immersion into the, that, that world of Asia, I, I love that. And I used to always ask to work a lot in Asia. People say, oh, you didn't do much in Europe. You didn't do much in South America. And I said, well, because I always asked for Asia. So Lindemann was, yeah, the coordinator was here in charge of both for Philippe Calvé. Oh man! Love Wait, which uh, which year are we talking, Hammer? Oh, Around? Boy, gonna, it's got to well, be got to be 95, ninety-five. Okay, 90, 95. Okay, so it's only like three years after the opening, I guess, of that village, right? It opened in yes, ninety-two. Yes, it was still you know such a discovery net, and people hadn't heard much about it. And you got there, and you know every day was this new experience, and Australia was new, and the clientele was new. Yeah. So were you amazed by the the GMs like that didn't care if it was raining, only if the bar was open? Like they weren't phased by. <laughs> What, well, we, was it was it eye-opening for you? <laughs> it was eye-opening to see a real demonstration of a strength of a, of a Chiba village. You know, I always say my I had so many mentors, but Philippe Calvé and, and Kevin Bat, you know, helped mold me so much. But the, the 15, 20 French would come every week. And you're in Australia oh, with really? Australian and Japanese guests. And of course, the French would come in. And, you know, to somebody from France, Clubbet is French. To someone from Japan, Clubbet is Japanese. To someone from America, Clubbet is American. So he would face them down. And, oh, that was Keski's best. And you got to speak something in French. And you go, no, no, I don't. And he would just maintain the standards, English and Japanese in this village. And he would never say one word of French on the stage because it would be like, well, we don't say one word of Chinese in Paris because three Chinese are there. So why would I go the other way? He was so fair in his management. But there was almost that self-satisfaction. Because, you know, the Parisians would always put pressure on you from entitlement because over the years, that's how we tried to win their satisfaction, give them what they want. So every once in a while, you'd write into some strong management and say, no, it's not going to change the results. Uh, it's not fair. I'm fair. So that was always a, a battle in Lindemann. But the funny thing there was the, the Aussies. And you remember that. I mean, so laid back. But so laid back, you'd come to work one morning and say, where's, where's, where's Hamlet? Where's Greg on the beach? Oh, no, they left yesterday. What do you mean they left? Well, they got in the boat and they left. They wanted to go have a beer and they quit. I mean, it just—it was so casual, so backpack. Well, they, they had a term for it, right? NBO, next boat out. I think exactly. exactly. <laughs> did you partake in the emu stroganoff and sweet and sour crocodile on the menu? Like, did you have those things when you were there on the menu? Everything. Okay. Everything exotic. It was wild. And did you uh, like the golf course there? Because it's kind of a beautiful, like the what, eight or nine hole golf course on top of the island, right? I mean, did you did you golf? Uh, did you world did you... famous? Spent a lot of time out there, and you just reminded me of one that I wasn't there. I, I guess I got to tell it. I, I don't. I don't think he ever listens to this. But who knows? You remember the American <laughs> chief of village, the all-time crazy Ken? Oh yes, I, I heard what he used. To, yeah, I heard something. What he used to do. Uh, if, we're, if we're thinking of the same story, yes. <laughs> so. That was on that eighth hole. 
Oh, you were. Oh, you were there. No. But, no. Okay. Uh, oh, not okay. long after, because Greg okay. Snyder was involved, because <laughs> Paris called Greg Snyder to try to help fix the situation. Okay. <laughs> so as you know, Ken Smith's with VIPs. VIPs. He tees off on the eighth green. He sky highs a ball that doesn't even go past the ladies' tee. That's right. He automatically takes off his pants and he walks over to gets his ball. Comes back half naked and hits it again. I mean, the VIP and the woman is just like out of control. Complaint to Paris is not. Long story short, they fly Ken Smith to Paris. They call up Greg Snyder. You got to fly in. You got to come and talk to this guy. He's American like you. What's going on? They get him in the office and Philippe, um, I'll, have to, I'll think of his last name in, in a minute, but who was the director of all the Chiefs Village at the time. Philippe says, uh, did you talk to Greg? Yeah, but he won't listen to me. So he's like, Kenton, are you kidding me? Da, 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 da. I can't believe you have VPs. You take off your pants naked. You walk. He goes, Philippe, those are the rules. That was his explanation. Yeah, that. that's right. He made his own. He made his own rule up for that. Yeah, if you shank the the, the drive or something. Yeah. But uh, Lindemann was great, and um, a very sad moment when. Oh, actually, another side note. That was the era when we got rid of the bar beads to try to move to bar tickets. You remember? Yes. And Lindemann Island had a swim up bar up on that second level. That, that's right. Yeah, I was just going to ask you that. Yeah. <laughs> had to deal with those uh, GMs all day long. Can, can you tell us why you have paper tickets in a swim up bar? Mm -hmm. No, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> or when you get pushed in the pool, right? Suddenly your nice thick wad of tickets is just soaked to the core. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, when you did your stage chief of sport, and like you said, you don't really know if you're going to get a uh, first season chief of sport. So did you like do some networking? Did you contact a, a former chief that you worked for? Or did they just assign you? Like you didn't have to do any of that. They just assigned you. Okay, Hammer, here's your first villages chief of sport it's in martinique with so and so Has well a... as you know there's uh there's probably three levels that i'm speaking purely performance and, and and profile and perception of people probably it still exists today there's three levels of of your personal brand in club med which i still try to teach uh to geos not g so much because geos is because of the mobility you open your doors through how well you perform with gms you open your doors by your language skills you open your doors by the level of positive teammate you are and chief of villages might have had tough back then and they still might but they're always looking at that what do they want they want the best team period why do they want the best team to take care of the gms so in that day we didn't know it now i do i did as a chief of village and i and i sermonize on it now but the more you just took care of the gyms all the chief of villages talk to each other about teammates and if they have a full team and someone says who should i take oh no you gotta take hammer he's always talking to the gyms and boom so in that period initially she's myself uh, jenner and and i speak of us three a lot because you know we built kind of a cowboy team and you know when you become a sports manager you bring in your old cowboys you become a chief of village you bring in your old cowboys you know the reds and the boons and all these people that you hear about use my name it's because they were so great that i always wanted them with me they might have appreciated me but not half as much as i appreciated them so back that far I didn't know, but people were always wanting and asking. I had one dude who wanted me for Playa Blanca uh, my second time, Manuel, Manuel Fernandez de la Rosa. Wild Chiva Village on stage, great. Massive accent, Spanish and French. He went to the Paris office and I, he says, I need Amur with me. And they were, excuse me, I need Amur with me. I mean, there's no documentation. So they're looking for Amer. They're looking for some Moroccan or Tunisian guy to go work with him. And finally, an American chief of sports was in the Paris office and he goes, no, no, I think he's talking about Hammer. It's a Canadian. Hammer, not Amir. Because with their <laughs> accent, they didn't even find me in the books because it doesn't show Hammer anymore. 
So, uh, no, no, it, it really, Greg, was a case of uh, all the Chiefs of Village fighting for people that they thought they could make a team of that would take care of their gyms. All right. So first season Chief of Sport was Martinique, correct? Well, just Chief of Sports, because I know you were doing sports and animation before Lindemann, and then... And then yes. You, okay. Yes. So any, any, did you make any rookie mistakes? Did anything crazy happen? Or was it just a fun, crazy Martinique normal Actually, season? Uh, one popped into my mind now. I don't think I talked about you earlier, but I was in Martinique. I arrived from Lindemann late, which is a kiss of death in, in Club Med. So the manager, the chief of sports, arrives for my first time ever with all Europeans. I got 34 French, one Italian, and my girlfriend, who's American, Julie. So I arrive in this team late and they just eat me up. Here's the friendly Canadian. And I'm coming out of two years in Asia. And you know, in Asia, it's respectful, friendly management, you know, uh, soft management, if you will, which is caring management, which works well. But you get with these hard, tough, old style club at Europeans. And I, like I said, they ate me up. So it's about two weeks in and we finish the sports uh, awards. You remember the old big sports awards, the medals and everything. And they're on stage. They're playing with medals. They're disrespecting, in my opinion, a few GMs. So the curtains close and we're we're waving to the gems. Na, 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 na. Hey, 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 goodbye. Curtain close. And I say, everybody stop. Circle up. Sports team meeting right now. Which is not exactly my way. And in this circle, and this is 94, no, 96, sorry. I turn around, I look at people, and I fire two people in that circle. Now, I've never done that before, and I certainly never did it after. And I certainly coach and teach against that today. Yet the next day, I got 30 Europeans coming in. Oh, Hammer, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were so good. Man, you're great. Because the intercultural differences were so strong in those days that the hard director of management was the only thing you could get the respect from. So that poor step in management won me over the entire team. Crazy times, huh? Well, I'll say <laughs> But what, what, a, what a beautiful village, though, uh, Martinique, though, right? I mean, it, I think it's one of the gems out there and uh, i've seen photos of the newly renovated one too that is a pool now right <laughs> yes yes i yeah. like playa there was something almost spiritual about these places you know and, and legendary and of course that place had the legendary party for the americans uh, for a long time you know that that was made in 69 and in 69 was basically woodstock so that's how club med got attached to that you know sea sun sex thing it wasn't even near always the case but it just got attached to martinique and then the famous picnics and things like that that were still meant to break down the stress back home and make everybody hang out but they even get the enhanced reputation of uh, of craziness but what what a vibe what an ambience of martinique for sure well you go from i think one crazy singles village to the next because next i think you're in turquoise with kevin bad as chief of village and you're doing tricks and caicos as chief of sports right and exactly and kind of to wrap up that 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 geo and, and rds career is as you get, I was, and that's devastating. I know a lot of people that dealt with this. I was in Martinique, been around for a while, maybe about eight years. And, you know, you're starting to get people tell you to be a chief of village. Okay. And finally, Julie even, it was Jose Aliel who went to Julie behind my back and said, hey, you need to be careful with this because uh, I'm telling you right now, your, uh, your boyfriend's going to become a chief of village. And, you know, she didn't want to believe it. And it took her a while. And then she kind of like, almost like accept the situation and, and realize that you got to be partners, uh, like super strong partners, more than just a regular relationship. And Jose told her and taught her that. He says, the day that happens, it's uh, he's going to need you um, in so many ways. And, you know, you, you, they always say, you know, a, a man in a great position has a great woman or vice versa behind it. It's so true in the club. I mean, um, I mean, I don't, I don't accomplish what I do without uh, Julie always being by the side like that. 
So I'm in this mindset that I want to become a Jew of the village and Julie knows it's likely to happen and all this backing up and and whatnot. So the, the gentleman at the time, Frankie Gagan, the, the, who followed Philippe as a director of Chateau, she's in the village. And of course, like all, I go to say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about my future. And this is a two-minute meeting. He goes, well, yeah, yeah, this, that. Where you? Oh, yeah, I know that. Yeah. How old are you again? I said, I'm 35. He goes, oh, well, you're too old to be at Chief of Village, but you know what? You could work in the office one day. And of course, I keep my poker face and whatnot, but I am devastated, which happens to anybody who's gone that far and has that, that desire. So I play it cool. I do my job. And about two weeks later, I, as I did in the day then, I would go spell off water ski joes as a chief of sports and drive for them. So go take the afternoon off. So I'm driving the ski boat. I got a GM behind me in Martinique. And I'm driving the ski boat. I'm about halfway through the run. And I just break down. I mean, tears are coming out like a baby. And I got to turn around and get back to the dock. I got about a minute to compose myself. But it all came out at that moment, you know. Because then and today, it's, there's something so special about our crazy culture and, and, and becoming a true village that it's, uh, it's almost obsessed in a... In a you, you put the destination too much in the journey for a while there. So listen, I, I accept it, whatever. Philippe Calvé, he knows, he comes to me, he goes, look, don't stop. Because we were ready to bail. He goes, never leave on this note. Go do it another season. I go, all right. Which was a year at the time. He goes, he gives me the chief village list. And he says, where do you want to go? I said, what? He goes, you tell me on this list where you want to go. And I'm going to make sure you get there. I mean, this stuff was unheard of. And it's all because of how well you can do a GM. So... I look at this and I go, oh, turquoise, love turquoise. My, my first official season. And this Chief of Village, Kevin Bat, I've heard about him. Can I go there? So again, I don't find out until about five years later when Kevin and I become best buddies. He calls up Kevin Bat and he, he offers us. And Kevin Bat goes, wait a second. You want me to take a 35-year-old Chief of Sports and his girlfriend, because you know we never like couples in those days, who just got told he'll never become a Chief of Village and is probably completely demotivated. And Philippe Calvé goes, yes. So, of course, Kevin Bat takes a risk with us, who he didn't like it. And, of course, I get there, and the party starts, and the two Canadian blood brothers get together. And the next thing you know, he says, I'm going to host your wedding. And, and then we, we get married, Julie and I. And then we're going to buy a sports bar in Turquoise on Providentiales, change life. And Kevin says, don't do it. I got a feeling you're going to be a chief of village. And I said, no, no, it's, I've, I've been told. What are you talking about? And again, little did I know that through that time, Kevin had gone back to every single chief of village I ever worked with and told them to write a testimonial. And he sent this book to Paris from all the chiefs of village and himself to push for me. And you know how those stories go. Uh, before you know it, I'm setting up a cocktail in turquoise for all the gems. And instead of on the microphone, the chief of village after Kevin announcing all the gems, she turns around and goes, this cocktail isn't for all the gems. This is for our newest chief of village in Club Med. Hammer. Blah, blah, blah. Wow. So he did. He didn't give you any indication that this was coming. He was going to surprise you, right? Worse for him. He didn't even know. He had to leave Turquoise after all that work and all that, that belief in me. He left without knowing and thinking maybe I wouldn't. So he moved on to his next village all sad. And then it all happened, uh, you know, like two weeks after. Oh, wow. And, but did he, he was there at, he was there for your wedding, correct? Uh, so, so middle of the two seasons in Turquoise, we say we're thinking about it. And he goes, well, no, you're not just thinking about it. You're doing it because, you know, Kevin Bat. he's like, you're, you're getting married here. I'm hosting your wedding. So that was pretty funny because like happened years ago, I go to Turquoise and I say, well, the only way I can get married here is if I bring my wedding party here. And my wedding party is a cheese, Jenner, Sparrow and Bo. And he's like, well, who are these guys? I said, well, they're all ex-GOs one way or the other. And they're all my buddies from Vancouver. He goes, well, I can't have these people come in. 
And I said, you got to trust me. You want to have them work for you. So you want to bring them all in for a couple of months, short-term geo, to be in your wedding party? I go, yeah. So he, he gets convinced to fly these four. I mean, we had like 60 friends come in, plus all the gyms for the wedding. But here's my wedding party, all these XGOs. Well, by third day, three days into it, of course, Kevin, he's got all the guys at the bar going, you know what? Forget Hammer. You guys are working for me from now on. So he, <laughs> he kidnaps all of them. And for the rest of his career and my career, when I became Chief of Village, those guys were coming to do short terms all the time. It was like a battle between me and Kevin. I said, no, Kevin, I got Sparrow coming in this week. No, no, no. I need Sparrow and Cheese. So again, why did we want Sparrow, Cheese, Jenner, Boat, Red, Boone? Because of their relationship with the GMs. You know, they were, they were unparalleled relationship builders with the GMs. Let's explore this friendship with Kevin just for a minute. If we could just depart subject to Club Med, because, you know, I, when I came up to you at, at Reds, I was fascinated because I heard you had done a, an Ironman, which is one of the hardest things anyone could ever do. And not only did you do a couple, you did them with Kevin Bat, correct? Yeah, that's uh so who convinced know. who convinced who? I mean, if you can talk about it, that would be great. But if you can't, that's that's understandable. But I'm wondering if there's any convincing going on or you're both yes, done. Oh. It, it's <laughs> out of control. And very often with us, it's kind of a back and forth. Like we said before, uh in in any business, I think, and in any uh, situation, be it military, business, team, professional sports, at some time you have to be a leader and sometimes you have to be a follower. And all the great ones were, all the great geos were uh, at a certain uh, at a certain time. So we were in the office when we reopened Sound Piper in 2011 and we started hosting triathlons. And Kevin, as would be Kevin's way, says, well, there's no way we're hosting triathlons in that village without us being involved. So he's grabbing everybody and the CEO, Xavier, and away we go. We do this first triathlon, which we had to do a rally because we were all out of shape. One guy rode, one guy ran, one guy swam. So we do that in Sound Piper. And of course, our CEO, Xavier, goes, well, that was easy. He goes, we got to do our own. And we're like, oh, no, don't tell me. So, of course, a month later, we're doing a sprint triathlon. Again, long story short, Zabe, well, we got to move from uh, sprint to Olympic. And I was not a swimmer. I look at, uh, out at the ocean. I see, I see sinking. So anyway, we go on. We go to Olympics. And then Kevin and I get the bug. And by 2013, we did 11 triathlons in a year, only to find out about a year later from a couple of pros. You know, they almost wrung our neck and says, listen, nobody does that. You're going to kill yourself. So we had to dial that back. And then, you know, as anybody who's done this and is, is listening knows, you, then you want to challenge yourself with a 70.3, you know, a half Ironman. Ironman, don't call it a half. It's a 70.3. So <laughs> do one, do the another one in Miami. And at some point, you, you're hooked. And you got to be thinking the, the, the pinnacle. You got to be thinking Ironman. But we're not stupid. We knew the, the undertaking that was. So this went back, forth, back, forth until no names, but some older friends, not Vancouver gang, but Clubhead friends, some some GMs, some, some pretty respected people started talking about, no, no, don't do it. And a couple of guys come to me and go, hey, you know, Kevin, you know, he's bigger than you. And you guys, you know, don't let him do it. And you guys don't do this. And for me, that was it. I mean, that's automatic when I hear that. So I went to Kevin the next day in the office. I said, look, I don't know about you, but I've just wrote a letter to my wife, Julie. And I am not going to have anybody say that to us. I'm doing an Ironman. So, of course, he had to get on board. So either he'd push or I'd push. We sign up. We're supposed to train a year. We do about six months, which is insane. We do uh, Mont Tremblant in Montreal, which has two passes over Mount Duplessis. Not yeah. named after Handel, but the same name. <laughs> and so we do this monster Ironman and we make it. And, um, you know, people are going crazy. And I get asked a lot about, you know, how, why this, what's the most important part. And whenever I talk to another person they know uh, who's done an Ironman, they know what you're talking about. It's, it's just not 
first the physical training. It's the mental will first. You got to see yourself cross that finish line about a thousand times. And they would have had to cut our leg off to not complete that Ironman. So yeah, we did that. And we did a couple others after. It's just uh, most people will say when you, when you cross that finish line the first time under the 17 hours, they'll tell you, they'll look at you and say, well, great job. Now that was either a bucket list or it's an addiction. <laughs> and it's true. It's either one or the other. Was there a point in your first one in 2015 in Mount Tremblant where you questioned uh, your sanity? Like, was there a point like, what, what, what was I thinking? Did you was it on the swim portion? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> or you know, you focus and you stay with them. But there's a moment. It's funny you ask that one because we tell that story at uh, dinner parties and whatnot. You swim, you get out of the water, the adrenaline's going. You get on the bike, and if you're smart and and you've treated the nutrition like a science you're on your watch and you know exactly how many calories you got out per hour. And you know, you're, you've got everything that, as I say, down to a science, which is seriously more important than the actual physical training. And then you get the run. And then as soon as you just take your first step on the run, you go, Oh my God, why did I do this? So the run was always the most painful for us. So Tremblant is, is two loops and uh, of like whatever, 12.5 or 13.5 and 13.1. And so I don't see Kevin because Kevin swims so much better than me. There's always a distance between us. But on the second loop, and, you know, you're, you're close to dying, but I see a silhouette because the lights weren't working. So it's a very dark run in Quebec because we've already gotten sundown by this time. As, as you can imagine, we're on about hour 14. And I see a silhouette coming. He doesn't recognize me. We're three feet from each other, and he sees me. We stop, and we look at each other. Three seconds of silence. He goes, how you doing? I said, uh, okay, how you doing? Okay. And then he looks at me. He goes, can you tie my shoe? And I look down, he can't even get down to, to tie a shoe because he's seized up. So yes. I, I shake my head. I go down on one knee. It takes me three seconds. I tie a shoe. I look up at him. I go, you got any ibuprofen left? He looks at me. He goes, no. I look down. I go, oh. And then we look at each other, start running the other way. See you later. And we just start running. I mean, you're in zombie land. But at that moment, here's this, you know, two guys have been doing this for half a year. You see each other and you can't even communicate. You're just in survival mode. But you don't stop. And crossing that finish line and hearing that, forget his last name, but Mike, the you know the legendary announcer, you are an Ironman. I mean, that's that's something. God, you make me want to do one now. Okay, okay. Exactly. <laughs> that's all I need to hear. <laughs> well, I, I'd like to. I don't know if my body would let me, but I'd love. I'd love to. <laughs> yes, everybody can. If the two old Canadians can do it, anybody can. <laughs> All right. You mentioned a lot of names, uh, Hammer. Now, is there anyone, like, I don't want to leave anyone out. And, you know, we can always preface this by saying, if I forgot you know, to mention anyone, but you've already mentioned a lot of names. Is there anyone else that you haven't mentioned that I, I haven't asked you? Like, I, so would, I was almost wish you wouldn't answer that question. Okay. <laughs> so I don't have to. Okay. You, no, you, no, it's, I mean, I could. You have mentioned a list. lot. You have mentioned I, a lot. I, I know, I know. Even your your village list is two pages, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but, you know, it's 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 a little bit in eras because today, you know, we talk mostly about, you know, the, the way back years and those relationships with those people that mentored us. I mean, nobody really talks about them today. Nobody knew them. I mean, it, that's how far back it was. And, you know, the the, the managers and the, the Hansels and the and the Jose's and the Kevin's and the Philippe Calvez, those mentors in Club Med. I, I say now also, if it's done well, you have leaders and mentors that. Later on, the reason that you'll go work for them anytime, I mean, you'd stand in front of a truck for these people. And that's the way I tried to teach people how to lead, not manage, lead in Club Med is you've got to take care of your people so the people take care of the guests. You've got to take so good care of your people 
that they'll do anything for you in a positive way, not manipulation whatsoever. It's caring management. Well, it was tough love way back when, but it was caring management. And in, in those days, we would have done any, and still do. I mean, to each other at my wedding, by the way, um, you know, we were trying to be on a budget. And I'm like, well, I said my wedding, our wedding. We don't have a photographer. So someone gets hold of Hansel, who was the photographer in Columbus. Hansel, who never left the village, he's a hermit over in, that, in, in, in Columbus. He gets on a plane and he flies over to Turquoise to be our photographer. Stuff like that. I mean, the, the relationships, it, it transcends friendship, as you know. Uh, it's like, you know, going to, to war with your colleagues. Nobody else understands what you're doing when you're a geo. Those early years, like I said, the people we learned from. But when I became a chief of village, that group of people became more of an emotional attachment now because these were the people that impacted my success. So the way, when you get into the Reds and the, and the Boons and the Scotty D's and, you know, I'll go on and on. And often I think of somebody like Jenny Lopez, J-Lo, who, you know, passed away. And these people, I mean, man, they change your life. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. That's why we got to do another one someday, Greg, to, to get more names in. That's right. Well, I, yeah, I would like to, like, if you'd be willing to come back and then we've, we focused on uh, your club med career up until chief of sports. So if you uh, had time later in the year to come back, we can cover uh, chief of village to, uh, to present day, if that's, uh, that's okay with you. Love that idea. I love that idea. I got to tell you one story too. Uh, yes, please. So you caught me because turquoise being the first season, which is why, you know, we do a podcast like this and you do it again so well, but it was funny to go back with Kevin because it was meant to be the last season. Didn't turn out that way, but there was this full circle mindset at the time. And when we got married there, you know, we didn't, we, we thought that was it. I know you and I chatted about different celebrities that sometimes you come across in Club Med. And that early part of my career is Joe and RDS. You know, I had Johnny Holiday, Fabio, the guy who used to be at Jean-Claude Van Damme, we played volleyball with. All these cool things that Kane Hoder, who was the guy who played Jason in Friday the 13th. We used to do beer drinking contests together and stuff. But a funny one is we were at our wedding and we're, we're getting married in turquoise and Kevin is just setting it all up. Uh, we, we said, you know, you got to tell stories. That's how we learn things from Hansel all the past, because to, to make us kiss, you had to not make a toast, but you had to tell a story. So we're at the wedding. I'm at the head table and reception manager comes up and says, hey, there's somebody wants to come in. I said, come in tonight. We don't even have a, a price today. He goes, well, he says he knows you. He's a, he says he's a professional hockey player named Glenn Anderson. And I'm like, oh, man. Because as, as you might uh, have heard, Greg, you know, they used to have all the hockey players back then. Even Gretzky would not visit the village, but they were all buying properties then because of the taxation and all the Canadian lawyers down there. So a ton of hockey players lived in turquoise on providentialities. Now, Glenn Anderson, we have this weird background because uh, a way, way long ago, a girlfriend in, uh, in Vancouver of mine uh, left Vancouver to go modeling in Toronto and she meets Glenn Anderson and they become boyfriend, girlfriend. So, of course, she's been telling stories of us to each other, you know, back in those years. So I was always aware of Glenn Anderson and I wore number nine in all my sports and he wears number nine in all the sports, well, all his sports, professional hockey player. And this is a 500 goal scorer, Stanley cup champion. So Glenn Anderson. So I start walking towards the reception. I see this, you know, big hulking six foot two and a half dude sitting in the reception. I'm going, this is going to be uncomfortable. So I walk up to him and he starts walking towards me. And he goes, uh, he gets close and he looks at me, he goes, hey, nine. And I look at him and I go, hey, nine. And he says, can I come into your wedding? I say, come on in. So we became fast friends and, and Sparrow, General, these guys, Kevin became fast friends with Glenn Anderson. And uh, 
you know, is uh, just one of those stories I had to throw out there because you do have the opportunity to meet people and, and befriend people that you never thought you would from not only inside the club, but outside as well. Yes, sir. Earlier in the interview, you mentioned um, the, the luxury range, like the exclusive collection. Can you talk a bit about that? Because I'm, I'm not sure I'm too, I'm too familiar about it. Is that okay? No, great, great question. And it's, it's funny. And you, you were there, I think, when that, you know, capsule incomparable, when we started to move upscale, which took a long time, if you think about it, because our, our strength was and is sports, ambience, entertainment, food experience, the social atmosphere. I mean, you could say party if you go back further, but social, social uh, atmosphere for sure. Then and today. But when we decided to go upscale, which was to survive because the clientele was changing and we were going to lose everybody who wanted a bit more comfort. You know, you couldn't have anybody anymore with no locked doors and no air conditioning. It just wouldn't fly. It took the geos a long time to understand that. But we were, we were following market trends for the gems or we were going to go under. So we started to move upscale, which you remember was, was tough. We'd have to do meetings with pictures of dress codes and I'd go up to big red, big red. I like your dress pants. I like your dress shoes but you can't cut the sleeves off your dress shirt. You know, it, it <laughs> took so long for the Joes to kind of uh, uh, make that uh, transition. We used to have to make photos for everybody. You know, more comfort. We renovated the villages. and But now we still got that ambience and that relationships with all the GMs, Joes, Gs, and we're going upscale and it's working. Well, again, the world changes. And you know, everybody knows the world today. If you take a helicopter view and people like to be pampered and they want a spa and they want good material and they want really good hygiene security for their kids. So we always said, how do we keep the conviviality and keep moving forward into that comfort, that, uh, that luxury sector, which is what we had to do. And so now we've done it. We've got, you know, upwards of 15% of our portfolio is what's called exclusive collection. It was originally called Five Trident. But you're talking about the exclusive collection in Albion, in, the, uh, in Mauritius Islands. It is butler driven. There's suites there with butlers. Every GM in their suite gets a butler. Our exclusive collection site in Charlevoix, the new one in Quebec, I mean, you go up into the lounge area, jacuzzi on the balcony. So we've got these exclusive collection spaces. We're focusing on the mountain product, but not just French Alps. You know, we're in China, we're in Japan, we're in Charlevoix, we're going to be in Utah in two years. So we're club med, we're still the ambience, but we're continue to keep moving forward in that uh, that real exclusive, we call it the exclusive collection, where you've really got a, a premium brand. So we're selling a premium brand that's international and fun. I know I sound like a salesman, but it's true. Oh, no, no. I, I really wanted to know, I, because you mentioned Five Trident. So I think when I left around 2005, I think that's where, where it was at. So I, I didn't know it had evolved uh, so much. You know, we teach that to the first season geos. We call it, you know, the integration of the onboarding program. And we got photos. And you see the hut villages, you know, in... Uh, in, in Greece and Italy and whatnot, the, the old hut, literally a hut with, with no door. Yeah. Public bathrooms. I mean, people, <laughs> and well, I wish it was like the old days. And you're like, no, you don't. Yeah. And then, you, you know, the first, uh, the first uh, building in Agadir, building a winter village, not to get the guests. We built the first winter village in Switzerland to have somewhere to put the geos in the winter because we didn't want to lose the geos anymore. The first winter village was designed to take the water ski geos and make them ski geos so that the next season they could be water ski geos again. You know, the mini club, the mini club was made. Why? Because back in the day, all these people came single and they became couple and they had babies. Oh, we need some more for our babies. It's such a cool voyage. It wasn't just business driven. But, uh, you know, when you get the last 15, 20 years and you see 
a GM still wants to water ski. They still want to watch people on stage. They might even want to get on stage. They still want to do a volleyball tournament at night, but they want to go home to some serious comfort. They want to open their fridge and, uh, and, and they want to go in and have some real fine dining. And that's what we do. Nice. Thank you. Well, Hammer, do you have time for just one more question about Club Med? Yes, sir. I would like to know what are the three things you miss the most about working in the villages? <laughs> we get, I do get that one. That's for sure. Well, I'll kind of answer it in two ways because there's even that feeling of missing something when you're in the villages. And when, when I started, remember, and, and I, you did the same thing, we were basically all switching every six months, which is unheard of when you think about it today to keep consistency of service. And each time we changed the thing that was, you know, devastating is we're, you're leaving these intense friendships after six months. And, uh, you know, in tears, as you remember, like the gems that would cry after a week. And it was so impressive how we'd leave a village in tears, probably get the quick break at home, usually get into your next village. And two weeks later, you're back at it. You know, you get, you get all these new friends. And then it happens again six months later. So not missing because, of course, I think we all keep up with each other pretty well. But yeah, I could say that through those years and all the years, it's not seen such intense friendships and relationships and even acquaintances enough but you know that's that's when you can say thank god for uh for social media and the ability to communicate today so people man people but today when i left the villages and i used i've had that question for these 14 years it just i always answer with christmas and they like what and you know this too there's that feeling especially when you were organizing so especially from a chef village perspective when I looked at Christmas, New Year's, every chef village looks at full village. I can increase my results. I want to get my gym satisfied. I, I want it's a two week period where I got to win. But I always believed, like always, you win through the team. So to do deco with the team, to do the geo program with the team, to not do it myself with the entertainment boss, but to get eight, nine people to talk music, to make the music program for New Year's and build it as a team. And especially to take that mini club manager and the entertainment and all those geos and build the, the mini club show. You know, that July 20, uh, excuse me, December 25th, usually. Sometimes the 24th, I would take the risk and do the mini club. All those kids on stage and watch every parent give an ovation. I mean, I was that intense. It's heartbreaking not to do that every Christmas. So for me, it's, uh, it's that Christmas two weeks is what I really miss. And also, I guess you miss the fr freedom and... Well, probably the most Im Im important teammate of all, right? Ah, funny. I did talk to you about that one. Okay. Because again, you remember what I was saying about you could bring a group of people and, uh, you know, you get HR uh, at the time, the uh, the HR business partner assigning people and that, you know, who do you want on your team? They didn't even, they didn't even ask me who I want. They already knew who I wanted. I had the same gang, all the, the best of the best I always wanted. In my opinion, the best of the best. It's funny because, you know, you talk of Club Med being a party. Julie and I were in couple in Playa Blanca. 1990, my second season, Julie and I were already a couple, you know, married in 97. So of my 39 seasons, 38s with Julie. So th there was the hammer cheese Jenner start. And then there was often, you know, hammer and Julie, hammer and Julie. When I was a chief of village, I'd stay busy, busy, busy. I'd go say hi to everybody in the restaurant. I'd come down and sit at my table. Julie would make a table for me every day with seven great guests. You know, she'd form my table for me. So yeah, I used to joke about that and, and uh, you know, say, well, at least uh, it was easy to, to not have to break up with my girlfriend or my wife because I just say she's on my team. So, uh, <laughs> and right. so I, I don't have to miss her. So, you know, that was part of the reason we left the club is we were looking around. We had two kids, excuse me, left the village. 
you know, four and a half, two and a half. And they were getting the best of the best in the club. I mean, to bring up kids in the club is awesome. And it, it was for no other reason except that there was almost not enough villages left for the right schooling them with the language we wanted that we hadn't already done. Um, you know, we didn't have to leave. It wasn't oh, with the wife saying we had to leave. It was not tired of Chiba Village. Uh, and there was some pressure for a promotion. So the idea of having, instead of impacting 200 GEs and 100 GOs and 700 GMs, now I thought I could go into HR and impact 3,000 GOs and Gs. And so that's why I wanted to move into HR. And uh, as you say, I got to take my best teammate with me, my wonderful wife. Great answer. But but I did lie. I think I have one, one last question for you if you have time. Do you have, uh, because you've been so kind with your time, do you have any any last words, something you'd like to say before we uh, before we end? Now you know you're in trouble that you finally picked the guy who likes to talk the most. <laughs> That's right. No, listen, I again, I go back to that question you asked about people. And if we if we both commit to each other to do something again, we'll be able to do more people. But man, the people. That's how I got into HR. And, you know, Gilbert, I was told by the, the real chief of villages. And I said, didn't you do a chief of village stage? And they said, chief of village stage. There was no chief of village stage. The chief of village stage was 30 seconds. Said, what, <laughs> what, what was that? And all the guys back in the 50s, 60s, and into the uh, 70s, they would go see Gilbert Trigano before they went to their village, of course. Because, you know, this was like pedestal time. Chief of village on a major pedestal. They go to Gilbert Trigano's office, talk, talk about the place they were going. And as they were walking out the door, he'd say, stop. They'd turn around like clockwork and he'd say, take care of your geos and your geos will take care of the GMs. And I heard that early in my career. And so not only was it true respect and, and you know, I, I was not a dummy. I, I, I knew and, and uh, made it a lifelong mission to, to, to try to improve my management and leadership. But out of that message that sincerely, if you took care of your people and you led by example and you did exactly what you were going to ask them to do, then why wouldn't they? So how could you not have a great season? And so, you know, I, I, I never like when someone said, you did a great season. I said, come on. I know I might sound like a commercial, but I never did a great season. I just happened to impact Geos and Gs enough that they did a great season. So again, big shout out to you, Greg, but all these people who do the podcast and they do it because of that emotional attachment in the club all those people that helped me get where I am today, and especially all those people that worked on my teams. And I don't say work for me, I say work with me. Excellent. Could not have said that better myself, sir. Well, I do want to thank you again, uh, Hammer, for taking the time to uh, to speak to me today. It's been uh, it's a huge honor. Thank you very much. Well, the honor's mine, my friend, and um, so let's do it again somehow. I would love to. I will get in contact with you. I'll give you about a six month uh, head start and then uh, then you'll start hearing from me if that's okay. I'm going to flood your inbox. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Enjoyed it. Well, everyone, that was the amazing, the one and only Hammer. And Hammer and I wish you a great week and we'll see you all next time. Say bye, Hammer. Ciao, everybody. <laughs>